Russian-speaking ransomware gangs hit a new victim, and Australia's data security reckoning. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. First up this week, Executive Editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, explains how Russian-speaking ransomware gangs are targeting a new victim. Russian organizations are facing a new cybercrime threat, ransomware. Historically, Russian-language cybercrime groups have shied away from attacking Russia or any of its neighboring allies. That's because there are a few unwritten rules of Russian cybercrime, at least for any Russians who might want to stay out of their country's prisons. The first rule, never attack Russians, or any of the other countries in the Commonwealth of Independent States. The second rule, when the country's intelligence services ask you to do them a favor, you say yes. So, back to that first rule. Such was the imperative for Russian-language cybercrime groups to only target foreigners that most of the malware they design, including ransomware, won't even run on any system that uses either a Cyrillic keyboard or appears to be in Russia. But apparently, times are tough, and some cybercrime groups have been testing a fresh approach. Namely, since last year, ransomware attacks targeting Russian businesses and government agencies have doubled. So says cybersecurity firm Group IB, which names Dharma, Krylock, and Thanos as the most seen strains hitting Russia. Based on the attacks it's been able to track, Group IB says the average ransom demand is $1.6 million. Unlike victims in the United States and Europe, Russians don't typically get hit with a threat that stolen data will be leaked unless they pay the ransom. Instead, attackers who target Russians typically keep it old school and demand a ransom simply in exchange for a tool to decrypt the data that they have forcibly encrypted. As Western law enforcement agencies have increased their efforts to disrupt ransomware operations, some attackers have stopped working as affiliates of big-name operators to try and stay under the radar. For the same reason, many attackers also eschew big-game hunting or hitting really large victims in pursuit of the biggest possible ransom payoffs. Instead, many are targeting small and mid-sized victims. But again, in Russia, the rules appear to be different or at least they are for a Russian-speaking ransomware group called Old Gremlin. It's been operating since 2020 and has been tied to a number of attacks against Russian organizations. Group IB says that while the group's average ransom demand is $1.7 million, last year, in at least one instance, the group demanded $4.2 million, and this year, nearly $17 million in a single ransom demand. Whether victims ultimately paid or paid that amount isn't clear, but clearly the group is continuing to receive at least some ransom payments, given its continuing operation. Unlike other groups, the members of Old Gremlin appear to take a break after they receive a ransom payment. Also, over the past year, they appear to have focused on a smaller number of victims compared to before. Perhaps they've been refining their tactics to increase their chances of success. Many of the group's attacks begin as spear phishing emails in an attempt to trick victims into installing malware that can be used to download more code to give the gang remote access to the network. So these aren't the only tactics being used by ransomware gangs today. But it is a reminder that the most successful ransomware operations excel at finding new victims 
as well as ways of shaking them down. And at least for some Russian-speaking ransomware groups, Russian targets have become fair game. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. After experiencing the biggest hack in history, Australia is now facing a series of data security disasters. Managing Editor for Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, discusses the latest with me on Australia's data breach debacle. Great to see you, Jeremy. A few weeks ago, we discussed how Optus, Australia's second largest telecommunications company, suffered a massive knock to its reputation as it experienced one of the largest data breaches ever in the country's history. You conducted some excellent investigative reporting on this incident, and since then, new data leaks have occurred. Can you bring us up to speed as to what happened post-Optus? Yeah, you know, it's been absolutely wild, honestly. Uh, after Optus, which was about 10 million records, Optus is the second largest telecommunications company. Uh, there have been three other data breaches that have occurred that have been significant as well. There was an online retailing site called uh, MyDeal, which is owned by the largest grocery chain here, Woolworths. Um, that had a data breach. Uh, there was a, a wine retailer with a significant customer user base that also reported a data breach of probably about 700,000 records. And then there is Medibank, which is one of Australia's largest health insurance companies. And they said last week that they were uh, had a cyber attack and or a cyber incident rather. And they said that they'd done an investigation and it, you know, it looked like that no personal data had been taken so far. They said that's what the investigation had turned up. Um, but then yesterday they announced that actually a group had contacted it and said, look, we want to open negotiations with you because we have stolen data from you. We have stolen personal data. And Medibank said it was investigating it. And then it came out today and actually dropped this bombshell, which is that uh, the ransomware group or extortion group provided about a hundred insurance policies uh, that proved that they did have data. And this is like quite sensitive data, it includes like medical diagnoses and codes for medical procedures, uh, in addition to all the usual name, address, date of birth, uh, that sort of thing. And it also has Medicare numbers in it. So Medicare is Australia's uh, national healthcare scheme. Um, so this is a fairly piece of sensitive data as well. So all this has happened in a really, you know, in a matter of about three weeks here, we've had just massive breach after large breach. And it's really kind of causing Australia to really pay attention to these issues and causing some government action as well. As you said, these events are unprecedented in the region. Why is this all happening in Australia? Is this just a coincidence? Or is there something more to it? Yeah, I mean, look, kind of looking at these things, it's it's extraordinary. I don't, I, I've definitely not seen this in Australia or perhaps anywhere else to have, uh, you know, basically four data breaches in a row affecting, you know, at least 13 million people. We don't even know the number of people that are affected by by Medibank, and that could that could be in the millions as well because they have four million customers. So to have like. You know, Australia has a population of about 30 million people. So to have more than one in three people, you know, probably touched by one of these breaches is really extraordinary. And, you know, the government has been 
has been taking action on it. Um, you know, the minister for Australia has a minister for cybersecurity now. This is a newly created cabinet position that was created when uh, after the last election earlier this year. And her name is, is Claire O'Neill. She's also the minister for home affairs. And after the Optus breach, you know, she basically said, you know, look, we as the government need better powers to enforce cybersecurity provisions on private companies. And, you know, said, look, we've got to lift standards here. This is totally unacceptable that this is happening. And so the government is looking into uh, different ways to perhaps increase penalties on companies for privacy violations. You know, all, there's already a bunch of cybersecurity related legislation on the books, but they're also looking to strengthen that as well. So what does that mean, strengthening cybersecurity laws? Yeah, so I mean, it hasn't really been dictated exactly what the government's plan is, but there's already a lot of good stuff on record. Like um, Australia passed this thing called the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act in 2018. And basically what this did is created a mandatory reporting requirement for uh, utilities and financial services and healthcare organizations that if they had you know, kind of a serious cyber incident, they had to report it to the government because the government wanted to get better statistics on what was happening. And that act was also amended recently and it added a, uh, a new obligation to have companies basically create, uh, you know, have a critical infrastructure risk management program, right? They wanna know that companies have a plan to deal with risk and evaluate risk. Um, it also imposed a framework uh, for enhanced cybersecurity obligations, uh, and that's for infrastructure that are considered of you know sign national significance, like critical for national security. So you know countries are really reluctant to kind of put prescriptive guidance you know on companies, but they want them to because technology changes and the risk landscape changes. But basically, they want to know that companies are recognizing the risks and creating you know, plans and strategies to counter it. So it will be interesting to see, you know, what the Australian government decides to do to kind of strengthen that or strengthen the penalties around for non-compliance. As ever, Jeremy, very grateful to this hot off the press insight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And finally, perennial leaders Fordrock, Ping Identity and IBM, along with a surging Okta, set themselves apart from the pack of Siam vendors in the latest report by Cuppering Coal Analysts. I caught up with business editor Michael Novenson for the latest Siam Trends. Great to see you, Michael. A new Cuppering Coal Analyst Report provides an overview of the market for consumer identity and access management solutions. What are the main trends you picked up on in this report? Anna, thank you for having me on. Customer identity and access management, or Siam market, is rapidly maturing. It's been a space that's been around for a number of years, and it's gained increased attention in recent years as vendors begin to think about really what is the experience like for customers who are using their apps in sectors like retail or e-commerce, where there is a lot of engagement and activity from consumers, and it's often their primary buying motion. So there's been a shift from just focusing on the technology and making sure that suppliers are able to authenticate that people are who they say they are to really focusing on, is it seamless? Is there friction? Does the environment uh, which they use to log in and to authenticate, does it look like and feel like the rest of their experience when they're using the app or when they're using the website? So a lot of the innovation at this point is indeed on the UX side rather than on the technology or the R&D side. And we are seeing some players who've been in the space for a while, maybe trailing off a little bit as well as some next-gen players, some of whom have stronger relationships with the developer community, 
uh, stepping up and gaining more visibility. And did any surprises stand out for you? So we're definitely seeing uh, some turnover in the vendors who are gaining traction in the space. I know SAP and WSO2, Coppinger Cole said their capabilities have faded a little bit. Akamai, who is a leader in the 2021 report, wasn't even featured on this year's report. These are all folks who not only been around for a while, but often have their primary business outside of identity or even outside of security. In terms of folks who are rising, Auth0 was a, was a big riser. Over the valuation period, they had been acquired by Okta and became part of Okta. That in particular helped with their market reach. That is a venture-backed startup. Uh, they had great reputation in the developer community, but really lacked that global reach and also lacked that top-down approach, the ability to reach in, uh, to reach the CISO community and other members of the C-suite, which being part of uh, such a well-known company like Okta has helped Auth0 with their market presence. We're also, Microsoft is gaining, they're gaining in so many areas of security, just given their 80% year-over-year growth and the security market uh, that's also benefited them in the SIAM space. Obviously, they have, they're so well-known in the workforce world for Active Directory and Azure Active Directory and that benefits other elements of their identity practice. And then Transmit Security, I wanted to call it as well. They'd been around for a number of years. They had really bootstrapped their growth since 2014. But in June of 21, they closed a $543 million Series A round, largest Series A round in cybersecurity industry history. And that really has fueled headcount growth, R&D growth, geographic expansion in terms of their capabilities. So they went from not even appearing on the 2021 report for Coppinger Coal to being one of 10 leaders in the SIAM space this year coming in at number seven. So they're definitely going to be one to watch going forward. And what are we likely to see going forward in the SIAM arena? How do you see the market evolving, say, next year? It's an interesting question that Top three remained unchanged between 21 and 22. It was Ford Rock, Ping, and IBM were took the gold, silver, and bronze. That was the same as last year. That, in all likelihood, will change over the next year. And the reason being that the top two companies, Ford Rock and Ping, are both being acquired by Toma Bravo. The acquisition of Ping by Toma actually closed on Tuesday of this week. The Ford Rock acquisition was announced just last week and is expected to close in the first half of 2023. And it's overwhelmingly likely to industry observers that these two organizations are going to be combined. They're mirror images of one another, been around for a few decades, started off as legacy companies focused on on on-premise delivery, focused on license-based models. They've both transitioned in recent years to cloud-based form factors, to subscription delivery models. And they're both really focused, unlike Okta, who was born and bred in the mid-market, that both Fordrock and Ping are focused on those large enterprises and making sure that technology is customizable. So it would appear likely that Toma Bravo will bring the two companies together, consolidate them into a single organization. What that means going forward in terms of the SIAM platforms are, does, if they're a single company, does Toma Bravo maintain the two separately? And continue to have a technology roadmap for each? Does Toma Bravo end of life one of them and try to transition customers onto one of the SIAM platforms? That all remains to be seen. And probably we won't know more until the acquisition of Fordrock closes in the first half of next year. But it does seem likely that those two companies will be combined once Toma owns both of them. Michael Zeba, thank you very much for sharing this excellent overview of the current SIAM trends. You're very welcome, Anna. Thanks for the time. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.